We've got this thing going on. There's a, there's a task that God has given us, a, a project that he has set before us to, to, to build, to replace an education building by adding on to this building. And the plans are on the wall and the model is there and the building fund is open and God has abundantly provided before what we would have asked for or imagined. And yet in the midst of all that... Um, as we went through the book of Ephesians, we saw that God gave his people a, a project to build. God gave his build, people the, 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 the call to build a wall. But in their building the wall, God was building his people. And more important than any structure that stands and continues here at Brush Prairie is how it is that God is building his church. And our Lord has said, I will build my church. So as we come to the book of Ephesians, and grab some of that energy from the book of, Ide- uh, 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 of Nehemiah, a building book. As we grab some of that, we see that that metaphor continues. Bob's just not making it up. That's all through the book of Ephesians. The breadth, the length, the height, and the depth of God's love for us in chapter 3. Until we all attain to a full maturity to the measure of the stature of the fullness or full maturity of Christ. To equip the saints for the work of ministry, which is building up the body of Christ. That the church, Jesus' church, he is building it on a foundation of the apostles and the prophets. That in Christ you also are being built up together into a holy temple in the Lord. This temple is being built from the whole body. What every member provides together. Do you remember that in Nehemiah chapter 3? That everybody got into the wall. And some parts of the wall looked different than others. But everybody participated together. And so it all is in this church that God is building. Everybody participates. He says in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 16, The whole body joined and held together by what every joint supplies. What every part supplies so that it builds itself up in love. So be careful what you say. Be careful what you talk about. Only use those words to one another that are are good for building up. There's a lot of building in the book of Ephesians. So as we look at this book, we'll see the foundation and then we'll see the fullness of it. We'll see what God has done and then we'll see what we are to do. As we look into the book of Ephesians, and we'll just get a start this morning, we'll get introduced this morning, I want us to, to, to see what God is doing as he builds his church. Now, we want to we learn, as, as Jesus himself said, I will build my church, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He will build his church upon a certain rock, a, a, a foundation, a, a cornerstone. As we... As we Beginning in Ephesians, I think it's important for us to get the context, to get the setting, to understand, well, who are these Ephesians? What do we know about them? How are they in some ways like us? Where are some of the continuities, some of the connection points? And so, well, Ephesians are people that lived in a particular city in Ephesus. And this is a place where where uh, Paul visited at one point. He tried to go there and was not successful. And then later, in Acts chapter 19, he's able to go to Exodus, or, or rather to Ephesus. 
Uh, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put a map up on the board, first of all, a map that will show you, okay, there's Ephesus, and that's a map of Paul's third missionary journey. Now, on his second journey, he starts out very similarly. He goes into the Cilicia and Galatia region, those churches that he had visited on his first journey. He visits those churches again, and then he continues to the west. His intention is to go west, to turn toward his left, and to go to Ephesus, because he knows that Ephesus is a major city. Ephesus is a significant city. It's the third city of the Roman Empire. After Rome in Italy and Athens in Greece, there is Ephesus in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. Huge influence on the surrounding region, and that was Paul's missionary model. He would go to these centers of influence knowing that the gospel would work its way out from there. Okay, so he, he, he wants to go to Ephesus on the second journey in Acts chapter 16, but the Lord says, no, not there, not now, it's not the time. Well, he doesn't tell him it's not the time. He just says no. He prevents him. And so he continues on, ends up at Troas, then he gets the Macedonia call, goes to Europe, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, and Corinth, and a very quick stopover in Ephesus on his way back to Antioch on the end of the second journey. But now, as we turn to Acts chapter 19, and Paul returns to Ephesus, it's different. But there's a curious phrase as we start Acts chapter 19, it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. Now that's a curious mention. He doesn't just say Paul came to Ephesus. Paul traveled to Ephesus. He could have traveled there all kinds of ways. He could have, he could have taken a, a boat from, from Antioch or Jerusalem, or Caesarea, rather. Caesarea, he could take a boat around to, to Ephesus. That's how he's going to return at the end of this third journey. But he doesn't. He takes the inland route. He takes the same route that he went last trip. And this time, God gives the green light. This time, it's go. This time, Paul and the gospel, in fact, at this time, the church comes to Ephesus. There's an interesting thing that happens there. Paul meets some people, says they're disciples, but we don't know much more about them. It turns out they're actually disciples of John the Baptist. They have been baptized with John's message of Israel, repent. You're, the kingdom of God is coming. Your Messiah, Israel's Christ, is coming. Repent of your sins and be ready for God's kingdom. And yet, now... Paul explains that more fully. He says, had you received the Holy Spirit? We haven't even heard about the Holy Spirit. What are you talking about? And Paul gives them the fullness of the gospel, of this new thing that God is doing in the church. And we're going to see more about that in Ephesians chapter 3. But there's this mini Pentecost moment. Isn't it a strange encounter that, that as Paul lays his hands upon these 12 guys, as if it's 12 representatives, 12 representatives of Israel, as he lays his hands on them, the Holy Spirit comes upon them visibly, just like it did at Pentecost. What's going on there? Well, in a nutshell, everybody knows where the church starts in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit visibly comes down, and now the Spirit of God indwells believer. That's new. Again, we'll talk about it in chapter 3. Something different than the Old Testament. And, and now we get just a little glimpse of that again. It happens again here in Ephesus. Toward the ends 
of the earth. As the gospel has continued to spread, the gospel has gone into the far places of the Gentiles, including this city of Ephesus. Church comes to Ephesus. Now, Ephesus was a significant city. Like I said, it's the third most important and influential city in the Roman Empire. It's a very wealthy city, and part of that is because of its location. Let's go back to the map. Ephesus sits on the, 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 has a natural harbor from a river that flows into that harbor. So you can, you can of course, um, trade happens in, in cities with big, nice harbors. And also there's a river to bring trade further inland. Not only that, but the 1,700-mile royal road starts in Ephesus and goes further into the east, into Persia and beyond. So a major trade corridor starts at Ephesus. Not only that, but it's the center of religion for the worship of Artemis of the Ephesians. Now there are temples other places around the Roman Empire of Artemis and also the Roman version of her whose name was Diana. But it was centered in Ephesus. It brought a lot of religious visitors to Ephesus in order to visit the temple of Diana. We're going to see how that plays out as we go further through this chapter. Uh, to give you just a, a, a glimpse into the city, going back to the pictures, let's, let's, let, let's go to the main street. Let's walk down Main Street, Ephesus, and as you're going down, you see columns left over. Imagine not only a beautiful paved uh, um, main street, but paved and covered columns and beautiful ornate roofs covering the sidewalks on either side. And those enter into shops and offices. This was a beautiful and a wealthy city. You can see the library down there at the end of the street. There are several temples between here and there. There's a public bath and there are other public facilities as well. Let's, let's walk on down the street a little further. Here's one of the temples you'd pass. We'll keep going. We don't want to stop there. Another temple, and you see the little, there's a head in the middle of that top arch, and on the, that's, the, that's the goddess Fortuna, and on her head is a crown of the city walls. There was about a seven-mile-long wall around the city of Ephesus, but Fortuna was the god of fortune, the god of good fortune, the god of prosperity, and also she provided security to the city. And uh, so they, there's, there, you can see just a glimpse of some of the temples. We haven't even got to the biggest one yet. Let's carry on a little farther. This is a temple, uh, or, or rather a model of the temple of Artemis. It was uh, originally built, I think, around five or 600 B.C., but then it was an arsonist trying to get attention for himself actually set the temple on fire. And it burned. The wood beams and the, and the roof structures and so forth caused the whole thing to collapse in on itself. And that, curiously enough, happened on the day of the birth of Alexander the Great. Alexander offered, when he learned about that a couple of decades later, he offered to help pay for the rebuilding of the, of the temple. But that would have sort of gotten... Alexander connected with the Ephesians' Artemis temple, and they didn't want that. So they found a way to graciously wiggle out of that. They told him, uh, it's, not, it's not right for one god to build the house of another god. So they flatter Alexander into backing off so that they can build their temple themselves. They want Artemis to be grateful to them, not Alexander, you see. So 
the temple is rebuilt, and as it's rebuilt, it's 120 of these columns, um, 60 feet high. It's one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It's the largest temple in the Roman Empire when it is constructed. A fantastic um, thing to come and to see, and people traveled all over in order to come and see it. Well, how does it look today? There it is. In fact, that one pillar they put back up, they reassembled one pillar just so people could get a feel of what it would like if there was 120 of those forming a temple. But it's half of the ground is swampy today. You can see three storks have made their home at the top of that one column that has been set back up. Um, the temple of Artemis, and any thought of Artemis really, is long gone has long passed except for history or archaeological geeks like me. Nobody else cares about Artemis any longer. A little bit more about Ephesus. This would be, if you continued on down, down street, the, the, the library is just on our left, and this is the entry. These gates were, were dedicated to Caesar Augustus. This is going into the mall. So instead of Vancouver Mall, wouldn't it be nice if Vancouver Mall had an entrance like that? Do you expect the entrance to Vancouver Mall to still be there 2,000 years later? Probably not. So that's the entry into the marketplace, and that's where all those beautiful shrines were sold. Okay? And you could buy an idol of, of, the, uh, of, the, of, of Artemis of the Ephesians. And so, so the trouble starts in the marketplace. One more. From the marketplace, very close to the marketplace, the marketplace is just a little bit down to the, down to the uh, left, um, is this theater. The theater is on another main road that goes all the way out to the harbor. You see the uh, green field just past the tree line? Imagine that was the harbor. That was water. And you had this beautiful marble street with columned and, and covered sidewalks on either side going all the way down to the harbor. What a grand entrance into this beautiful, prestigious, influential, very wealthy city. And they come up to the, this center point, this featured point built into the hillside, this temple that could, or, or rather this theater. This is not a stadium. Stadiums were bigger, but this is a theater that could seat 25,000 people. It's massive. It's huge. You can get a, a sense of it while Julie's there taking a picture. This is the temple that the riot that we're about to read about in Acts chapter 19, this is where it happened. But just to get one more sense of the city, I want to go to those, there's two more pictures, a couple of homes. Oh, the, the church initially met in homes in, in Ephesus, and we think of homes as really very small stone buildings, you know, nothing fancy, narrow, tiny rooms, probably dark, dimly lit. Well, many homes were like that. Many homes were very small, did not have indoor plumbing, but not all homes were like that. Some homes were like this. This is one of the, of the um, terrace villas or terrace houses in Ephesus. Recently uncovered about, I think, 20 years ago now, there was just this hillside. And somebody decided to dig into that hillside, and they found these magnificent hillside homes, homes with a view overlooking the rest of the city. Beautiful places, lovely places. These homes are like 4,000 square feet. They had huge banquet halls, huge reception halls in them that you could easily fit a small church into one of these homes. 
So when you think of house church, often you think of maybe like your small group, maybe 20 people at most, and many house churches were like that. But there were also house churches in Ephesus in Paul's day and after that were more like some of those homes. Very, very large, plenty of room to invite more people in. I'm not saying a lot of wealthy people, but everywhere Paul goes with the gospel, there are some of the noble classes, some of the higher in society, some of the wealthy, like Lydia and Philippi, like some of those women um, associated with the Areopagus there in Athens. And even in Corinth, Paul mentions, not many of you wise, not many of you wealthy, not many of you noble. And Queen Victoria said, I'm glad Paul said not many instead of not any. Because she too was a believer. And there was room for the, at the cross for her. There's room at the cross for anyone who would believe in Jesus, who loved them and died in their place. Even for wealthy people. And so, just as in other places, the gospel changes the lives of people all across society. If it just impacted some of the poor people, it would not have been near the threat. But actually it impacted, as we read, some uh, very influential people as well. So Paul comes to Ephesus. He comes in that inland right route. Now is God's time, what he couldn't do before. Now he can do. He comes to Ephesus. There's this Asia Pentecost. The church has begun here, and Paul continues. He preaches in the synagogue for three months. Did I read that part? I don't think I read that part. In verse 8 of Acts 19. Paul entered the synagogue, and for three months he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading. He's explaining to them. He's pleading with them. He's seeking not for them to understand what God has done for them in Jesus, how Jesus has paid for their sin, died in their place. They can have right relationship with God again by trusting, by believing God, trusting in what God has done for them in Jesus to take their guilt, their sin, their shame away. He's explaining and persuading about the kingdom of God. And when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way, speaking of evil of the Christian message before the congregation, Paul withdrew from them and took disciples with him, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. The, his, Greek, his Greek name means the school of the tyrant. So if you've thought um, that uh, your principal was a bit strict or the, or the um, president of your college or whatever it is, you're not the first one to consider the leader of your school a tyrant. Um, homeschoolers, do not try this at home. So, they, he, for, for, so he's reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus, and some old manuscripts, ancient manuscripts, add in from the 5th hour to the 10th hour, from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m., so let's just assume that there's some historical reason for that, that being in the manuscript tradition. Maybe Paul, six days a week, daily it says, for two years is teaching for five hours a day, reasoning, explaining, and persuading, calling invitations to believe in Jesus for two more years after the three months in the synagogue. That's 4,000 hours of Paul bringing the gospel to Asia. Now, when I was with Transworld Radio, when we were with Transworld Radio, we, we uh, 
if, if we're able to bring the gospel in a new language by radio, maybe a people group that, is, that has few, if any, missionaries, haven't really heard the gospel before or, or not much training, one of our, our, our gold standard of program to bring to them, and we did this in over 100 languages when I was with them, uh, was the Through the Bible radio program. In the Through the Bible program, that would be adapted into a language, maybe a million people speak this language. And that program would be adapted into that language so that not only just translated, but the, but the explanations and the illustrations, the applications would all be adapted into that local language and culture over radio for a daily program, five days a week, a 30-minute program for five years. Now you can imagine, starting from scratch in a, in a, in a, in a language that only a million people speak, that's, that's quite an undertaking. That was our gold standard. If we could take them all the way through the Word of God in this kind of daily, verse-by-verse teaching, a bite at a time, 30 minutes a day, for five years, we would give them a solid grounding in God's Word. Do you agree? It was a good plan. That total is only about 650 hours of Bible teaching. Paul did it for 4,000. What, what, what I'm trying to demonstrate is the foundation of the Word. And I'm not saying people sat there for the whole two years, every day, five hours a day. There was probably a continued cycling through. Somebody else would be there, and they'd grab a friend and say, you got to hear this too. And then they'd grab others. And, and then they, they'd be there in Ephesus for a while, and they'd sit in on Paul's teaching. And then they would go back to where they came from. Cities like Colossae, who when Paul wrote his letter to them, he said, I haven't seen you face to face, but they had heard. In fact, all over Asia, this gospel has gone out and is changing lives. That's the accusation that's going to be brought. Everywhere in Asia, this gospel is being heard and being believed. Paul has taken it everywhere, but not, not merely Paul, but those who heard Paul. Those who believed, and they, they took it back with them to their own home. They took it to their own neighbors. They took it to their own friends, to their own family, and others believed as well. That's what the Word of God is. It's one of the reasons that we, philosophically, uh, our, 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 our focus on God's Word in church ministry is not a tactic. It is not, a, it is not even a value for Brush Prairie. It is the core of what we do because the Word of God changes lives. And we need to know who our God is, what our God has done for us in Jesus, what it is that He calls us to, empowers us for. All of that is in His Word. It changed Ephesus. It'll change us. Look what God is doing in Ephesus. Let's get an example of the impact, the impact that that teaching of God's Word does. There's the incident of the seven sons of Siva, and there are those who are pretending or trying to tag along with what God is doing through Paul and the church, and they cannot pretend. It doesn't hold up. But in contrast to that, in contrast to that, look at verse 18. Many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And the practices and the contents of the spiritism encounter that, we've just, that, that, that occurs just prior to that, 
But it could be other practices as well. There's an openness. There's an authenticity. There's a vulnerability. There's no need to hide my guilt and my sin and shame any longer because Jesus died for it. God has removed it. I am now made holy before God. I am right in his presence and in relationship with him. I don't need to pretend like those seven sons of Siva. And so they are, they are coming and confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts, for instance, brought their books together, the magic books of spells and incantations, and they burned them in the sight of everyone. They counted the value of them, and it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. And that increase in prevailing in the context is not merely more widely, but it is more deeply. That it is transforming lives. These magic books, these spells and incantations, they were, they were incredibly valuable. The, um, the, the cost, the total there, you can convert it into millions of dollars, but a way to think about it across generations and through the ages has been one of those coins, a Greek drachma, was the equivalent of an average day's wage. So there's 50,000 daily wage. That's the kind of money that we're talking about. That's, 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 that's in view here. There's a lot of, these books are worth a lot, and they're being cast into the fire. They're not being sold on eBay so I can take the money from it and give it to the Lord or his work. No, these, these, these are tools of the devil. These, these, this is the powers of darkness. These are the things that they used to be afraid of and yet trusted in. This is what they thought could give them success in advance, was a means of income because they could cast spells upon others. They could bring harm to their enemies, benefit or protection to their friends. This is what they trusted in, and yet they trust in no longer. They have cast it aside. These books represent the spiritual idolatry behind them. The other confidence, the confidence in something else other than God. Now there's a connection point there to us. Because you may not have magic books on your shelf at home. You may not have books of spells and incantations which you have been practicing upon your neighbors. If you do, please, we should talk. But we all have other things that we have trusted in. We all have other things that our confidence was in, things that we thought would give us value, things that we thought would give us fulfillment, things that we, we would use to make us feel better when life was difficult. And we trusted in that, and we thought that that could at least keep me going, and that could, or that could numb the pain, or that would be some help to me if trouble came. And my trust was in those things. And there comes a point when confronted with the gospel and when believing that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life means that God so loved me that he gave his own son for me so that I could be restored into relationship with him. That I need not fear other things that might happen in the presence 
in the present time, I need not fear that because, because God has me not only for today, but forever. Eternal life. And yet a life that he gives me, a right relationship that he gives me already today. And when I believe that, I can let go of those other false confidences, things that I trusted in instead. When I tell our story about how God called us into mission service to go to Southern Africa with Transworld Radio in the first place, one of the parts of that story is I, is, is I say that I had to give up the security that I thought I had in my career in the Air Force. I had standing, I had an identity, I had a regular paycheck. It wasn't a lot, but it was regular. And if they ran out of money, they'd just print more. They've been doing it ever since. And I needed to give up the security that I thought I had in that. Even as a Christian, there are other things that we trust in. And what's happening here is the Word of God The Word of God is advancing and prevailing. It's increasing and prevailing mightily. It's not only going more broadly to people all around Asia, minor, but it is also going more deeply so that they would take such a step that shook the culture of Ephesus. It shook the society of Ephesus at at its roots. There's a problem in the market. We're going to read about it. When Jesus builds his church, it changes things. It changes things. It changes the impact around you. It changes how you relate to people around you because the gospel changes you. What God has done, Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, changes us, verses 4, 5, and 6. And that will change your immediate culture. That will change your relationships. That'll change the the way that you relate to people. And as you change the way that people relate to people, you begin to impact the culture more broadly. We talk about the shifts in our culture, and we need to do something to change the culture. What we need to do is see the Word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, increase and prevail in the hearts of one person after another. That'll change your culture. And as our culture changes, the culture we're in the midst of will be impacted by that. God did it there. God also does it here. So as as this plays out, in verse 23 of Acts chapter 19, about that time, there arose no little disturbance. Now there's an understatement. When the gospel is advancing, when the good hand of our God is upon us, when God is at work and it's obvious and people see it and their own idols get threatened, there's going to be a reaction. You throw a rock down a dark alley and you hear a yell, it means you hit something. Paul hit something big here. No little disturbance concerning the way Christianity. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, who brought no small amount of business to the other silver craftsmen, these he gathered together, the silversmith's guild, he gathered them together with the workmen in similar trades and said, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. This is our cash cow. 
This is what's bringing it in. We make these little shrines with our own hands and people come and they pay us in gold for this silver because it's in the shape of Diana's temple. In this we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus but also in all of Asia this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods at all. What has happened in Ephesus, like in Thessalonica, is that they have turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, not a false dead God made with hands carved out of stone or metal to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven. There is our hope. There is our confidence. He is our future. Artemis has got nothing to do with it any longer. And there's a danger, verse 27, that not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, that she may even be deposed from her magnificent, she whom all Asia and the world worship. Why, there might come a day that the whole temple has fallen down, that the ruins that are left of it, in fact, are only inhabited by storks. And history and curiosity, or archaeology geeks are the only ones that visit it any longer. But you know, when you do, you'll find a table set up there. You can still buy little models of Artemis' temple, long gone. You can still buy little statues, little idols of Artemis herself. They're still on sale. There's a price to be paid for them, but they're worthless. They're worthless. That's exactly what they were afraid would happen. She will be counted as nothing. And so what happens is when they heard this, verse 28, they were enraged and crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. She needs our help. She needs our defense. Let's rally around her. So they cause a riot. The city is filled with confusion. And they rush together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. And when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples wouldn't let him. Even some of the Asiarchs, the rulers of the region, said, no, 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 this is not the time. This is kind of like, remember when you wanted to go to Ephesus in the first place and God said no? Listen, brother, now is not the time to go into that theater. This is a raging mob. They are not going to listen to reason. Others try. The mob is in confusion. They don't even know what they're angry about. You've experienced that with people, right? You got people that are angry with you because you're a Christian in the midst of all that's going on in the world. You just believe in Jesus and all that stuff. And they're, they're, they're a little bit uptight with you about it. They don't even know why. Some of the harshest opposition to the gospel today and through history has been from people who don't know why. They've just been stirred up. And you've experienced that in other areas in society when division, the enemy just loves division more than anything else. He loves confusion. And they don't even know why they're against it or that they're angry. But, but in the midst of that confusion, this rage is stirred up. The point is, when the gospel is advancing, when Jesus does build up his church, you can expect opposition. And that is an ongoing concern for me. It is not a worry, but it is a concern for me. We have seen God's hand upon us as a church. We, we, God has showed us these are things you need to be doing, and as we do them, he's even bringing people here who, who need this. 
And yet in the midst of that, the enemy would love to sow discord. He would love to sow sow criticism. He would love to plant judgment. He would love to create a confusion and a distraction. And Paul's going to tell us in Ephesians chapter 4 to be diligent, to work at it, to watch over it, to keep, to guard the unity of the Holy Spirit in a bond of peace. And even that keeping, that bond of peace is something that comes to us from God. Jesus said, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, when you think of the gates, I normally, I hear Jesus say that, and my thought was always that the church is going to be attacked, but the enemy won't get in. That's why I thought that read. You know, the gates, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Won't, the hell won't be able to storm the church and get in. But they're not the gates of the church. First of all, they're the gates of hell. They're the gates of the enemy's domain. And In the ancient world, the gates of the city were defensive. The gates were not used to attack. The gates were the place of defense. That's where the enemy would try to enter the city. That was the weakest point. And so the gates were fortified and strengthened and guarded so that the enemy would not prevail. The enemy is guarding his gates. The enemy is guarding his territory. The prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, does not want to let them go to the gospel of Jesus. And he will oppose you. But Jesus said, you, the church, will prevail. That his church, as his messengers of the gospel, in the midst of this rebellious planet called earth, that the church will prevail and the gospel will advance and it will enter into the enemy's domain and it will free captives that the enemy has held in bondage, that the gospel will increase and prevail, even as it did in Ephesus. See what God is doing. I will build my church. Expect opposition, and yet the gates of hell will not prevail against it, and so we will build on this foundation. Jesus said, upon this rock, I will build my church. And the rock is not Peter. I would suggest that perhaps the the rock, the the cornerstone, the, the founding point upon which he would build is Peter's faith or what it was that Peter believed in. Peter's believing in Jesus as his Lord and his Christ is the foundation of the church. The, that which we will build on, Paul hints at at the very opening words in his letter to the Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1 and just two verses. So everything I've said so far was just introduction to get us here. But it's just two verses. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace, God's favor, to be in right relationship with God by grace, not by any work that I have done, but what God has done for me in Jesus who died in my place, for my guilt, for my shame, that I simply believing God concerning Jesus and his death in my place, God restores me to right relationship. Jesus is 
death is counted for my forgiveness. And by his stripes, I am healed, as Isaiah describes it. And we have peace with God, and we have peace from God. We, we have a, 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 in God's grace, which is unpacked for us in, in, in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, we experience God's peace in life, which is unpacked for us in Ephesians 4, 5, and 6. To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, to the holy ones. There's some confusion about saints. Some churches want us to pray to saints. When I, when I traveled to Ephesus and other places in the, in the Greek world, I would often see these icons or big fancy images of one of the saints, one of the heroes of the faith in that area, and people would come and kiss the icon to show their devotion to that saint. It overshadowed their devotion to Jesus. It also was a real problem during the pandemic time. All this kissing of statues, not a good thing at all. But the saints are not the heroes of the faith. The word saints means holy ones. Now holy, you think, oh, perfect and sinless, and that's not me, and that's not what holy means. Holy means set apart. Holy means one that has been set apart by God for God's own purposes. In my household, my toothbrush is holy. I think I've described that to you before. My toothbrush is not used for cleaning floors. Sometimes there's some hard-to-reach places that Julie's got to get in on some, some uh, thing that needs to be cleaned or whatever, but, but, but she doesn't use my toothbrush. She promises she doesn't. Because my toothbrush is holy. This is a toothbrush. Come on. None of you want to use it. Well, if you come to my house, you could borrow this, you could borrow that, you could use this. But please, no, you cannot use my toothbrush. It is set apart for a unique and special devoted purpose. I'm not saying you're God's toothbrush, okay? I'm not saying that at all. But like that, God has set you apart as his holy ones. You who believe in Jesus, you are set apart uniquely for God's purposes. Why would you be used and abused by the Artemises and the enemies of the gospel in this world? You are set apart by God for his purposes. That the word of God might increase and prevail both in you and through you. We like Paul. Paul was an apostle. The word apostle means sent ones. But Paul says that we are ambassadors for Christ. We are sent ones. We are workers together with God. We are on God's mission. We are the ones who are sent to go to others around us, to bring others into God's family, to build up one another as followers of Jesus. We are on this mission together. God has given not merely to Paul, but to all of us. Like I said, those other places all around Asia where the gospel went, it didn't go through Paul. It went through the people who heard him. And people are still hearing him, even today. And what if you took something that you hear and learn and sinks in from Ephesians, and you take that back to others around you? Who knows what the gospel will do? If God did it in Ephesus... Why not here? If he did it then in the midst of much opposition, why not now? If, if God used those who heard Paul to go out to other towns, other people around them, why not you? Why not here? Why not now? Why not you and I? 
We're going to sing a song in a minute. It starts, in the darkness we were waiting, without hope and without light, till from heaven you came running and there was mercy in your eyes. Who's that song about? The song's about Jesus. Yeah. But Paul coming to Ephesus looked a lot like Jesus. In darkness they were waiting, without hope and without light, till from heaven, sent by God, Paul comes running and there is mercy in his eyes. And if that works for Paul, I think it's God's intention that we also should look a lot like Jesus to the people around us. So as we sing that song, think of our Savior running from heaven for you, for me. But think also of who he'd have you run to with mercy in your eyes. That this wonderful gospel, this good news of forgiveness in Jesus would increase, would prevail in us and through us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace. Lord, thank you that you, first of all, came to us. You brought this saving word of Jesus, our Savior, the one who loved us and died for us, the one by whom, in his death for us, we are forgiven. If we believe you concerning him, if we trust in Jesus' death in our place, that we are then in right relationship with you again. We have life with you, not only today but forever. Father, thank you for that. And Lord, would you use this book? Would you use this truth that Paul wrote for the Ephesians? Would you use this in our lives? Would you, Father, so pour it into us that would it overflow from us to people around us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.